0: that as a note I got from my mother who died of the exact same thing within a week and a half of the age I was when I had my first heart attack. So I was on the table within a week and a half of being older than her dying of the same thing and we didn't even know it.
1: This episode contains discussions of domestic violence and is not suitable for children. Today's guest is a professional speaker, podcast host, world-class trainer, and CEO of Leaders Must Lead. He's on a mission to help creatives and entrepreneurs build profit. With 25 plus years experience in corporate roles, leading thousands of people and more than $150 million worth of revenue, he's a recognized expert in leadership sales and business strategies. He's also a hilariously accident-prone person, and he's overcome many serious health scares, nearly dying seven times, as well as a challenge. Childhood, Episode 58, Dan McPherson. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration.
0: with the elephants like we were able to go up and i mean yeah they were very clear they said they said wherever the elephant goes the elephant wins so (laughs) so like don't you know think you're gonna stand in the way of an elephant
1: i interviewed a guy on um the podcast who was over in uh, i think it was tanzania okay and he ended up being he went from being a tracker and poacher to um uh, working in uh the rehabilitation and and um, conservation of them <clears throat> it was a very interesting uh, conversation that I had with him. He was an Auss- he was an Aussie, um, so yeah, he was saying how easy it is just to get wrapped up in the local mentality when you're over there because that culturally that's what they do. Like, there's no yeah. It's interesting. Anyway, we digress.
0: Well, that, <laughs> we we will digress. That's what we do. This is true. That's, I mean, that's who we are, right? <laughs>
1: I think I've said this before on the podcast. Like when I was um, a kid, like all my reports were easily distracted in class, talks a lot, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, well, now I've made a career out of, right? Career uh, out of it. Right, same,
0: same. They're they're like won't stop talking, you know. And I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> won't be quiet in class. I'm like, that hasn't changed. You what? should see me at events. I'm like. Bah. I mean, it's...
1: But you get paid. I mean, you're a guest like to speak it, so you get paid to... I am,
0: but I'll also sit on the side of the room and have a conversation with somebody. And I'm, like... <laughs> I, I, I'm respectful about it. Now. I'm much more conscious of it and respectful of things now than I was than I was maybe 40 years ago. But uh, the, the, the principles probably haven't changed a lot.
1: <laughs> so... Tell me a little bit about your your podcast for living as well, as well as being a life coach. So would you say that you're more life coaching or more podcasting in terms of... Well, first
0: I would, while other people do, I would never describe myself as a life coach. There's a 0% chance I will use that term self-descriptively. What do you use then? Um, I people use a lot of different terms with me. They've used mindset, business, all of this. I like to say all development is personal. So I'm, I, I label myself when I have to as a business and personal development coach and a, prof- I, so I'll say professional speaker and professional speaker and trainer and, and business and personal development coach. Mm. And then I could use founder of leaders, Must lead. I, mean, I have lots of different things because I run six businesses, but it, but the, the, the things I, I would say that are forward facing the most are the professional speaker, business and personal development, professional speaker, professional speaker, and podcast host and business and personal development coach. Those are, those are the most forward facing.
1: Okay. So in terms of your podcast, you've actually got very similar guests. You probably got a little bit deeper than what I do on your, in with your guests, but you probably got very similar theme running through your podcast to what I do. Yeah. It seems like it what sort of got you to the point of wanting to do a podcast because for me it was like i wanted to inspire people to sort of keep going when they're having tough times and chat to really interesting people as well so what was it that inspired you to do it
0: well what inspired me was when i was in asia and i was on the i was on this speaking trip which i was fortunate to go on it was that we there were 50 world-class speakers that were there and then about 15 of us, 12 to 15 of us traveled for 45 days, went to six countries, including Thailand, that we were talking about earlier. And we, as we traveled, I was sharing a talk that was titled Dreams Are Real, Overcoming Our Own Objections to Create the Life We Want, which not coincidentally is something that I believe that we should do. But when I was sharing, it was the first time that I had shared a I would say, almost fully story-based talk. Generally, I was professorial. I was lecture guy in Mm. in a little bit, whether I intended to be or not. I I was a professional speaker. I had been on many stages. I'd done some things, but I, I tended to default into Professor Dan mode. And when I was there, I was sharing this story that was honoring my mother on the 20th anniversary of her passing. And as I did, I was amazed at the, at the reactions of the audience. And as I shared ideas such as how to label your inner voice and held up a stuffed animal and talked about it, all that people would come up to me that day and the day later and say, my life was changed and, in and, and this made an impact. Or they'd be in tears sharing their own story or saying how they'd went home and shared their own story. And it was the first time that I truly got the power of story that I truly got that our story is the most unique thing we have the only unique thing really that it's by far the most powerful thing we have and then when you share the good and the bad it can help people but when you share the ugly it transforms lives and when i came back i knew i needed to start a podcast because i hadn't seen anyone at that point which was more than two years ago now who was doing that in that way people ended up on either side of it but they didn't actually end up there
1: Mm. because your story is a bit of a an interesting one. And I think that's probably why. Well, I say interesting in inverted commas, but I, I would say that um, that's probably why you resonate with so many people because you had quite a challenging childhood, didn't you?
0: I did. <laughs> my my I, and, and at the same point, I think many of us do. Right. One mm. of the things that I am touched by is that everybody has a story, and mm. to them, their challenging their their childhood is challenging. To me. Mine felt challenging, but if you speak to someone who grows up in Africa with no food and owing their life to a robber baron of the land, my life looks pretty darn good. Mm. And I'm reminded pretty consistently of that perspective, and I think as kids we get it. And as adults, after we maybe do some personal development and reconcile some things, we get it. And in the middle, we lose track of it because we end up in this space where we think, "I I have it the hardest." It in and I I stick on this because it's been a topic, a conversation for the last couple of weeks with a number of people that I'm around. But it, also because I think it's an important understanding. When I ran teams. I would have an AM and a PM shift. And invariably, if somebody was on the AM shift, they would say, oh, man, the the PM has it so much easier and they don't do any work and they leave it for us. And what was interesting is the PM would say the same thing. The AM person would change to PM. And what do you think would happen? Oh, the AM's got it easy. Magically, wherever they worked had it the hardest. And I had one person who switched back to the AM and that's when it got really ridiculous. Suddenly the PM had it the easiest again. <laughs> and, and, and no matter where people go, we think we have it the hardest and we convince ourselves of that. I had a challenging childhood to me.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's discuss that challenging childhood.
0: <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. That's where you wanted to go. But I got caught in this because I've had so many conversations about that recently. I apologize. That's okay,
1: no problem. We've got
0: so, you know time. for me. My childhood, I I think of it as beginning when I was two. Even though I have clear memories back to six months old, when I was two. Wow, when, you have
1: clear memories after six I, months old.
0: I do. Yes, I I can tell you the day that I had eye surgery or the first time. Actually, I remember both, but the first time I was six months old, and they wheeled me into Doctor Trichu's office, who I thought of as Doctor Choo Choo, like a train. And they, I remember the toys I played with. I remember what we, what he spoke about to me. Wow. I remember the operating room, all is that of that. The,
1: is that your earliest memory?
0: The, the earliest memory is just a bit before that, when I was at home playing with my dog Dizzy in my playpen and I was I I remember the toys that we played that I was playing with. I remember pulling on dizzy's ear and, and that. And, and so I have, I have clear memories from that time. I remember convers other conversations that happened then I would say from six months to a year, it's pretty, it's clear in places, but maybe a little spotty in terms of continuity. And after that, it's pretty solid continuous. Although my head injuries, I've had five major concussions. They have not sharpened that. (laughs)
1: i didn 't even think that that was possible, and you know that these are actual memories they're not people that they 're not stories I, that people have told you and you know how sometimes I do you can and, have that? And,
0: and that was the, I appreciate the question because that was in debate for many, many years, and then there were pictures that were brought out that validated all of this that nobody knew existed, and these were stories that i 'd never been told like i didn 't know about the toy, and the toy that I had described so perfectly, boom, there it was. And I'd only had it until I was nine months old. And, there, and, and the people are asking me, how in the world could you have known that? I had described the things that were around the playpen in a house that we'd moved out of before I was two. All of these things that, that got validated over and over. And slowly people came, became believers, <laughs> <Are> <laughs> myself you, included, I guess.
1: Are you one of these people that remember, you know how there's, there are people in the world that can remember every everything, like every, down to the minute, you just ask them what happened on this day and they'll be able to tell you.
0: No, I'm not. I was, before my head injuries, I was very close to that. I would say I was maybe 90% of the way there, 95% mm. of the way there. I, before my head injuries, I could count cards through a six deck shoe and tell you what cards were missing. And, wow. and, and so I could do that. Now were I can you going tell to the you casinos? the- to to to, a, <laughs> <right. So> to, <laughs> to to use a right. So to 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 use a casino term, I can tell you the plus minus if I pay attention, <laughs> but I can't tell you the cards anymore. And my my mind is definitely not as sharp as it was before it got bashed a lot. How of did times. you get
1: concussions?
0: Yeah, which ones? So I I've I've had concussions from A number of different things the most famous the most well-known is the one that gets people to shake their head and it's also listed as number one in the most ridiculous injuries i say number one because we have a top 10 list of most ridiculous injuries that we update every year for for me Uh, just for me yeah oh yes there are 20 we narrow it and reorganize it to only keep it to 10 there were 22 last time we made the list. Okay. And these are just ridiculous injuries. I mean, like w- like going on a walk and breaking my finger, uh, things, the things that are, you know, or deciding I'll show you, you know, I, you make me feel like I'm going to that. I'm banging my head in the wall and I slam my head into a brick wall and give myself a concussion. I, there are these things, the crazy one, and as if those aren't crazy enough and there are others yeah. too like i almost separated my shoulder playing ping pong i mean right. there's the list is, is pretty a walking, crazy
1: walking accident then
0: oh i a little bit <laughs> yes I got, I got my head ridden down a hill and i broke my nose oh, my I, goodness. I i there are there were things that happen in life apparently and most right. of them seem to happen to me <laughs> uh I'm not saying I'm a magnet for that. I am saying maybe you bring a hard hat if you come along. So the 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 one that stands out most to most people is that I almost died while bowling. So I like ten pin bowling. Okay,
1: you're gonna please how how did someone throw a bowling ball at your head? Like how does that even? I did. You threw uh, a bowling ball at your own head. Oh, yes,
0: it was my own bowling ball. It was pretty fantastic so i was I was a pretty good bowler, not that you would know it by this story, <laughs> but I was bowling on a very competitive league, one of the one of the most competitive leagues in the in the state where I live. and I go i I'm the first night of the bowling league. I bought a new ball it was being worked on, so I used my old ball during the first game. The second game, apparently, my thumb had swelled up just a little bit and i go up to bowl and you start coming through your arms start swinging through and the ball i get about halfway there and the ball sticks right when it's supposed to come off and it holds and your momentum of course carries you through and now my thumb's pointing straight up in the air and the ball you hear a pop and the ball goes four feet in the air and lands directly on my cerebellum with the loudest crack you've ever heard and i fall into the lane oil Bleeding in the lane oil as the bowling alley, which had been loud, it was completely full. You're you're talking what thirty? I think there's thirty-two lanes there, five bowlers a lane. You're talking a couple hundred bowlers all actively bowling. Instant silence as I am now bleeding in the lane oil. My teammate, who is a firefighter, leaps over the counter and comes and stabilizes my neck. They call 911 as they figure out what happened, and it takes them like I don't know 12 minutes to get there. So, as silent as everybody's just waiting while they're waiting because they're terrified to move me because yeah. I, I got majorly hit in the head and and There are lots of other ridiculous parts of this story. This story continues in crazy ways. Like I went to the ER and they laughed at me because I had bowling shoes on. And, and then they released me a couple hours later, like, you have a concussion, go home, rest. That two days later, I was like, I got to get back on the horse. I'm, and I, so I drove to a bowling alley like 40 miles away, 30 miles so away, something knew like where that. You went, so nobody went. would know me. And I get up there, and between my legs, I'm just bowling the bowling ball to get past like the fear of what's going to happen. Yeah. And then Monday, I started my new job my new job was was working in the home improvement industry as i was at the time and i was working for these these two manly men and we went driving on a trip where i was doing speaking and i spoke throughout the day at a number of home depots that were that were on the path well (laughs) we get to the hotel at night and we get it's like middle of the night i wake up and i collapse and they had to carry me to the hospital because I'd collapsed. I was having problems with my head. Now, a few things happen here that are ridiculous. The first is we show up at the hospital, and the the admittance nurse believes that I'm faking it so she these guys are carrying me in, and she says, "You need to stand up you need to you need to stop faking it
1: well, she and, and I go to not stand be up in and the healthcare I, industry. <laughs> All right. Exactly
0: right. And I started staying up. I fall over and She's like, stop playing games. Stand up. I try to stand up. I fall over again. I did get that hospital visit for free. Uh, they, they ended up admitting me and it got, it got very scary because they admitted me. I couldn't move my head. I'm laying there for two days. We're four hours from home. I'd taken the only car. These guys couldn't leave to go back home. It was ridiculous. And this was, this was 12 years ago and i I, I mean it got really scary like they said we don't know if you're going to get your memory back we don't know if you're going to because i was having memory issues we don't know if you're gonna be able to lift your head it was like whoa they said two inches any direction and you'd have been dead i'm like okay i'm a, I'm, I'm what did I'm you break your neck
1: chin? or is it just the from the bruising
0: uh so it lowered the neck of my cerebellum a quarter inch which doesn't sound like a lot but apparently in your brain it's significant wow and i still have a big dent in if i if i were to turn so the around cerebellum's you'd see a big,
1: at the at back of your head
0: yeah the, basically yeah. yeah, it's basically the back near the top and okay. I've got maybe a two inch dent in my head now oh my that goodness. that is still there. I still have problems from this. I still have headaches, I still have neck issues that are from it. but here's the here's where it comes back to being funny. My dad made a connection that I hadn't made to this point. If you've ever seen the movie Kingpin and many of you may not have. No. But if you ever have, it's a movie about a bowler who gets injured in a ridiculous way and loses and loses his bowling career and his name is Munson and they start saying the 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 way, the way they refer to the injury is oh you got munsoned and that's how they start talking about bowling injuries. Guess what the name of the hospital i was staying in oh no it was munson hospital i kid you not (laughs) and so to this day one of my dad's nicknames for me is munson (laughs) and then the uh, then i so then we get we get back home i i start recovering a week or two later i go back and i'm like all right i'm gonna bowl again and i and i go to walk into the league and what do i walk into but everybody wearing football helmets And I go up to bowl for the first time, and and like everybody from like five lanes around just jumps backward. So that's my crazy bowling injury.
1: But let's get back to the childhood because you had you grew up with. I mean, you you said that you were hidden previously. Our previous conversation, you said you were hidden from Mm -hmm. your father. Yeah,
0: I was hidden from my father for six years. My mother took me out of the situation. And she took me unfortunately into a separate abusive situation, and I, I get the idea you'd like to pause there, so I'll, I'll save the rest if you'd like, or I can tell more wh- no, no, you, you, you go.
1: can you can go into it, but um in terms of your dad, did he know that that you were around? Did she leave when she was pregnant or
0: no, so I w- yeah, he knew I was around. Okay. I was almost two right uh, we were we had been living with him. Uh-huh. And my mother and he were not getting along. And I remember probably way too many details about that, that they wish I didn't and didn't know that I would have mm-hmm. because what kid remembers. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the, I remember that, that the day of the inciting incident very well. And I'm sure that there were many other incidents that led up to it. It's like anything else, straw and camel. Right. But I I remember that my father had a motorcycle. He loved to ride his motorcycle and he went outside and he was going to go for a ride. And he said, and he was, he and my mom had been fighting and he's, and he said, Danny, that's, they called me Danny then nobody needs to now just for reference. But they, uh, but he said, Danny, you know, Danny's coming with me. And she didn't want me to. Uh, It was, it was a thing and it got pretty aggressive. And then she said, at least put a helmet on him. And he said some choice words and said, no, and put me on the back of the bike. And we were, we lived at the bottom of a gravel Hill. And uh, now I remember that Hill being big. It probably wasn't really, if I'm honest, because I was not big, right. I would probably look at it now. Everything looks
1: enormous when you're a kid. Yeah, It's like
0: a four degree slope, you know, but to me, it was this Hill. And, he, in his frustration, revs the engine and spins the tires. And as he starts to go up, up, I fall off the back of the bike. And I fall and I and I roll. This is weird because I remember uh, another time I fell out of a car on the highway and rolled. That's speaking of crazy things. So I, I rolled and my mom ran to me. She's screaming at him. She runs to me. He gets to the top and I remember looking up and I saw... His, what was a shadow? I, I guess the sun must have been behind him. Either that or I just remember it as a shadow. But I saw him in shadow where he stopped, he looked back at me, and then he drove away. And when he got home, we weren't there.
1: He doesn't win the Father
0: of the Year award? Not in that moment, no, not no. so much.
1: <clears throat> okay, so you ended up leaving that situation and you said that your mom put you into another household that wasn't so great
0: she did uh we we went and we stayed with a guy by the name of ed Mm -hmm. and he was in northern michigan he was a few hours away so she knew ed before i don't know that's and she's I, i there are details i've not been able to go back and ask just because she passed 20 plus years ago i don't know how they initially met Okay. And, and that, and I, I'm, I've been curious about that, but he's not a guy that I'd like to find again, or maybe he yeah. is, but not for the right reasons. So we were—I I think she met him afterward. Like we went and stayed with some friends for a little while, and then after we stayed with these friends, we then ended up going with Ed. So I suspect she met him somewhere, and and they connected, and he's like, "Oh, cool, come with us," and we went, and we lived on this pig farm. And I have some positive memories there for sure. I mean that got to nurse the pigs by a bottle before I realized that there were going to be food a year later. That was a little hard. Uh, I remember stepping on a snake when I went to school yet another. Oh, I remember grabbing electric fences. There's crazy, crazy uh, injury moments. But that's just, um, ch-
1: that's just life on a farm.
0: I mean, right. Exactly. So I did, I did all these, all these basic things. And Got pulled on a toboggan behind, pulled on a toboggan behind a snowmobile. And like I say, there were some positive things. There were also some scary things because Ed was not a good guy. Mm. Uh, I remember when they would, uh, when, when I would get, I'll put quotes around this in trouble and, and he would go in and grab a belt and just pretty well smash me with it. Well, I got scared of that. So I decided to put a, I decided to put a pillow in. And he and he said, Fine, I'll turn it around the other direction. He pulled the pillow out and turned the belt around the other direction and used it. Or or like when he went made me go out and get a, a, a stick to beat me with and he didn't like the one I got, so he went and got one with thorns, or things, you know, things that happened, um, that, that shouldn't, but that did. And it was a tough situation. And when I was eight, he came home one night and, and I you know, I, I think pausing there to say something is, is really important. There are a lot of abusive situations, and I've I've had the 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 honor to hear many people's stories of their of the abusive situations that they've come out of, and the one of the toughest thing about these is that like eighty to ninety percent of the time it's technically good or objectively outside it's good. It's the living in that fear of it's the knowing that if you do the wrong thing that 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 makes that 10 or 20% everything. So he came home one night, he was drunk. And I remember when I was, and I was eight, I was right. I was basically right at eight. I mean, do I know the exact date? No, but I was eight or seven and a half or eight and a quarter, something right in there. And he came home and he was drunk. And I remember he was kind of, he was ranting, but he, but it was, it was this matter of fact ranting, And he looked at my mom and I, and he said, I'm leaving and I'll be back in two hours. And if you're here, when I get back, I'll kill you. So we called some friends after he left and thankfully they came and rescued us out of there and took us back to the town where we had lived before. And we went on to the next part of our crazy journey, which did get crazy.
1: Hmm. Okay. I'm just digesting that. Fair enough. Mm.
0: So now my mom and I go and we live in the town where my dad is, although in a very different part, a much worse part. And I recently found out that the way I got reconnected with my dad was because a friend of his saw us on the street and then told him about it and we got reconnected in that way. And so when I was eight, I remet my father and I remember lots about my first trips there and, and him trying to make things right and me try, me as a kid trying to figure it out. But what, I've, what I most of the time connect to is the time I spent with my mom because we lived in what I now know and then I was pretty blissfully ignorant of it. But what I now know was real poverty the, to the point to where she was selling herself so that we had rent to the point to where we would have half a hot dog in the house and I would eat and she wouldn't. And she'd, and and I would tell her, I'm still hungry. She's like, no, you're not. I'm like, Oh, cool. All right, good. I'll just go play monopoly some more. And yeah, I mean, that was, it was a tough time. I was bullied really badly. There was, there were kids down the street who grabbed my glasses and snapped them in half. And I wore them duct taped for six months and things like that. I had, I had one friend there, but the rest of it was, was pretty rough for a few years and i then then i heard that my mom was getting remarried and i think like a lot of teenagers i was i was like half resentful half hopeful like maybe things will change right you heard from her or from others from her well i mean from her she tells me but but i mean she she my mom was working as hard as she could she did so much she she was a secretary she i mean she she had given up she's i know a lot of brilliant people she is probably one of the two smartest people I've ever known on the planet and she gave up anything she could have done with that to make sure that I was taken care of and I that's part of why when I traveled I was honoring her on the anniversary of her passing uh, because I while I don't obviously think that she made all the best choices in the world I I owe a huge amount to her and I, I stand here on her shoulders and that that matters so much to me. And it's one of the reasons why I'm such a passionate advocate of moms and and, and believe that single moms are effectively heroes on this planet. Mm. Like it, it is it is so amazing what she did for me. And it's also why I, I think I've found I've found my way into not judging a lot of the decisions because I see the mistakes that she made, some of the decisions she made, but I honor the sacrifices as well. And when she got remarried, I was exposed to a lot of stuff. I was exposed to, Things that I didn't think I got exposed to drugs and violence and abuse and court trials and all different sorts of things, and and to be very clear, there were a lot of good things in there as well. My friends had no idea how much I was struggling with this stuff, and they, and heck, half the stuff they didn't even necessarily know what was going on. Although plenty they did.
1: How long were you in that? Well, how long was she in that new relationship for? The oh the the remarried I mean, t- until she passed. Okay.
0: So I, this, this went on and to, so I, she passed when I was 25. So this would have been 12 years. Okay. And again, he passed a number of years later and he was in many, many ways, a good guy. There were, there were challenges. I mean, I remember I, I was, there were, there were anger moments, right? There were parental anger moments, but there were, there were also a lot of, good moments there there were things that i didn't that i didn't understand about my new family and things that i don't necessarily believe were right or that i don't necessarily connect with or weren't my thing and do i remember some crazy times like being held against a stove as i got spanked as a 13 or 14 year old yes do i but do i also remember having honest to goodness caring things done yeah So there, I want to be very clear that that was not, it wasn't like that was all bad. There were just, there were definitely challenges, but it was, it was not, it was not horrific.
1: What brought you to the, um, suicide attempt then at 16?
0: Yeah, so. I get to this spot when I'm 16 where I was in a much worse space than any of my friends or family had any idea. And I, I find as I talk to people now that that is very true for for most of them as well. That's why you hear the shock, I can't believe, I had no idea. And it's also what's driven me to be truly connected to my son as, as he's grown and as he's fought some of the darkness as well. When I was 16, I felt... Unseen, I felt unheard. These are language. This is language I have now that I certainly didn't have then. I felt like the world wasn't speaking to me. I felt like I didn't fit in. I, ser- I mean, I certainly had been bullied a lot and was an outcast in a number of ways. But I had a, I had a couple of very good friends as well, and there were, there were things there that were positive. But I, just as I looked it, it felt, it, this is what I, I would refer to as the quote typical suicide attempt and that i felt i felt hopeless i felt like what's what's even the point um, i'm not going to be able to make a difference anyway like what i do doesn't matter and so i got to the spot where i just i was like that's it i'm done and i i see so many teenagers get there that's the the stat is that pre covid 3000 teenagers just in the us attempted every day and now with covid it's up more than a thousand a day. Mm. And so you're talking more than 4,000 attempts a day, just in the U.S., just teenagers. And so that's why I say it's it's the the typical time, the typical experience. And mine was very typical in that. And thankfully a conversation from a friend saved my life and she didn't even know it until 20 years later.
1: You never told her until 20 years later? No.
0: She didn't know I was struggling and it wasn't Uh, I mean, she knew I was struggling, but she didn't know that that was the day that she didn't know I was literally on the way to kill myself when she offered me a ride home and asked me to have and just sat there and saw that I wasn't doing well and and talked to me and talked me through some stuff. And. She had no idea until 20 years later that she saved my life. And and I'm super grateful to her. And I'm also grateful because I did make a promise to her to that I've only made to a few people on the planet that no matter what, no matter when, if you call, I'll be there. And 20 years later, she called me from a very similar situation. And the way that she found out was that we were having a conversation going the other direction. Wow. And I had And I had not talked to her in 20 years.
1: That's incredible, though, that she reached out To you after 20 years
0: based on that i'd seen her post something i think online maybe on facebook or something and i'd sent her a message just commenting and she and that was i think that was the the hook all the hook that was needed yeah and i was i was honored to be in that space and in that moment but we we'd always felt a connection Mm. and obviously i'd i'd felt it and she had no idea that that had been the case. And I used, I used that story also as an example of how the smallest things that we do, the smallest kindnesses that we extend, we have no concept of the level of impact of ripple effect that they have in the world. Just like my, my whole business many years later, my whole business got started because someone suggested a podcast to me out of kindness. Mm. Literally I can trace the entire formation of my business back to that moment we and and there's none of us that could have predicted that do the small kindness whatever it is and look and and you may never know the ripple effects in, that you had in the world but they're there
1: i think it's also important to put at this point i mean that's a heavy great that she reached out but it's also a heavy burden so if anyone's in that same situation please direct people to professional um services for that sort of thing as well i think that's important to Oh, for sure. And yeah. again,
0: she had no idea that she was having that conversation with me. No, I, no.
1: I meant when she reached out to you.
0: When she reached out to me. Yes. Yeah. I, I had had. Yes. I, yeah. I please direct people. And I I actually, even in that situation, recommended that she speak with someone she was not willing to. And I'd had many of those conversations because of the things that I'm involved with and connected with. And so I, I do, again, I, I agree with you. I encourage you to share these and don't feel as as strange as this is going to sound. And I'm, I'm a huge advocate to prevent suicide in the world. Don't feel that you have to take that weight on. Don't feel obligated to do that. The, you, if you want to help, there are many ways that you can help and they don't have to be by you inserting yourself into a situation. How
1: did you go from corporate, and I'm skipping ahead, obviously you um, got out of that suicidal situation when you were Mm -hmm. 16. How did you sort of get from that to corporate world? Because you actually,
0: um, from our previous conversation, you sort of thrived in the corporate world. I did. And it's it's important to, to maybe highlight the two things that I learned from that situation when I was 16, because they drew, they've driven almost everything since. That was the first of what I would call inflection points in my life. And the two lessons I took from that attempt at 16 were first that wherever you are, your environment, the people that you're around, that that may have influence, because of course it does, but that the, the the really change comes through our choices that choices create change. And that was powerful because I said, it was the first time I felt empowered. I can make change. I can I can go do it. I have agency. And I, I speak a lot now about the importance of understanding that we have agency. We have agency in our response because life is 10% what happens and 90% how we respond. And the more that I started to understand that my past, the environment, all that was 10%, but what I did with it was 90%. It affected everything going forward. And the second was the thing that drove me, which was the understanding that I was meant to have a huge impact in the world, that I was meant to help a lot of people. And at first, I took that in an egoic way and and drove forward to accomplish things. Now I understand it a very different way. But in any case, it pushed me there. And I went through the corporate world. You're right, I thrived there. Even though I had to fight for every, I had to fight and scratch and claw for every little thing because I was never the guy that it came easy to. I was just the guy who was willing to outwork everybody else and figure it out and learn and do it. And I ended up managing thousands of people and hundreds of millions of business in the end and was still not fulfilled, Mm. was still walking around feeling empty, feeling like I'm not helping enough people. I'm not doing the things. Why in the world do I feel like that? And I recognized at this similar time that I had to do something about it or admit that I wasn't ever going to do something about it. And I don't have any admit that I'm not going to do something about it in me. And so I started making a plan. And it was interesting because at first I made it out of emptiness. I made it out of desperation. And then I that the 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 podcast got recommended to me that I mentioned before. But the podcast and,
1: came out of you doing guest speaking, didn't it?
0: So you were already doing no, guest. Sp- oh, not at all. Oh, okay. Oh, my podcast did. My podcast came out of the trip to Asia, but. The podcast that was recommended to me, which changed my fortunes for the future, had nothing to do with that. It's much earlier. Oh, okay. I'm still working in corporate America. I'm go, I'm at my karate school late at night one night. We leave and the our, the teacher there, Master Terry, who I'm forever indebted to, said, hey, Dan, I listened to this podcast by Tim Ferriss. I think you might enjoy it. I was like, what's a podcast? I had no idea. <laughs> right. And, and he's like, Did you know oh, who this. Tim Ferriss was? No, I had no ah. idea. Not even a little bit. I mean this is <laughs> this is six and a half years ago now this was this was much earlier and I went home and I listened and I realized that I had been giving and giving and giving, but I'd lost my habit of feeding in. I'd lost my readers are leaders or leaders are readers mindset. I'd lost that growth mindset. It's part of why I won't ever let it go again now. And I'm so conscious of it. But I realized that as I started feeding in, I started getting lit up and I started being able to give again. And then I started being able to think clearly and then I started being able to see a path and make a plan. And a few months later, when my bosses flew in to offer me my third promotion in five years, I was able to sit back, look at them and say, what would it look like if I declined and walk away from a lot of money, more than I've ever made in my life, hundreds of thousands a year to say, I'm going to start my own thing. I'm going to jump off the cliff and build the airplane on the way down. And that's how I started my company and stepped into this amazing world that I'm part of now.
1: Did it take, and it's something that I have worked on, but has it taken you or did it take you a while to overcome that whole, the definition of success is the job title and the salary?
0: No, not that exactly. Partially because I'd had to overcome that earlier on in the the corporate space where I'd moved up and down positions and I'd moved companies and I'd interviewed and somewhere I lost the giving a crap what someone thought my title should be or was. And when I would take over a new team, one of the things that I would say to them is I would say, look, You need to understand, first, my job description isn't this this four-page document. It's one line. It's do everything I can to help you win and know that the rest will take care of itself. So that's my job description. And second is that we are all, as human beings, completely equal. I'm not better than you. I don't think that I am. We may have different roles in the company, but we're all humans. We all have value, and the way that we're going to win is that we're going to work together. And because I got to that point— I was able to be in a much better space. And so I wasn't fighting that later. It's it's also worth noting that my my second suicide attempt, which is 12 and a half years ago now, the, that, that that one was the one that broke me and took me away, really took my ego away, just destroyed it. And as I rebuilt myself into who I wanted to be in the world, I knew that one of the biggest things I had to get away from is being, um, am I, can we use some language here or now? Yeah, can yeah. I share this? That's so hard. I, I had been and my book title is this, I'd been the unintentional asshole. Mm.
1: Right.
0: And, and that had been me. I, I had a great heart, but I couldn't connect it with the world. And when I went somewhere, you didn't just need an extra hotel room for my ego. You needed a whole hotel. And after that situation, I, I was rebuilding and I, I struggled. I wasn't at all comfortable in my own skin, but I knew that I didn't want to be that, that ego filled guy. And now I would tell you ego always covers insecurity. So all I was, was an insecure mass. <laughs> and so, but I wasn't fighting that particular battle because I'd fought it earlier.
1: Hmm. I think it's something to to be said that you did go through that earlier as well, because it's just from a societal point of view, that's very much a, your job title, salary, um, house, you know, all that sort of stuff yeah. plays into the, keeping up with the Joneses.
0: Yeah, it does. And I, I, I always craved the security. Although what's interesting is every time I got it, I gave it up. I did incredibly well in sales. Gave up all that money to go train sales. Did incredibly well at that. Gave all that up to go into retail and learn leadership and learn different skills. Gave all that up to go do what I'm doing now. So I guess as much as I say I crave security and would like it, that's not my driver. And money, as much as I've wanted it, especially growing up as poor as I did, I as much as I've always wanted that and as much as others around me have wanted that for me, it's never been my driver. My driver has been... To help, And I didn't know how to express it. I didn't know how to get there. I didn't know how to show it for a long, long time, much less how I was meant to show it. And now that I do, it's very fulfilling. And something that's interesting, you, you, because you've touched on one of my favorite topics, which is our definition of success. Mm. Mine is vastly different than it ever was. And my definition of success only changed a year ago. And my definition of success isn't complicated.
1: Happiness? And I find that
0: every, what was that? Happiness? Nope.
1: Oh, that's Not interesting. Even. That's mine now.
0: No. What's your... I, and it's interesting because I take these, I take people through a five step process. It's one of the trainings we do from finding your North star to developing your personal resonance and it it i went through this process it took me years i do it now with people in a couple months what i i love to be able to give efficiency I, and i had to learn everything the hard way i like <laughs> to say my number one lesson is don't be a dan i i did it all wrong so you don't have to yeah don't reinvent right? the wheel so I, I i as i look at the world what i found is that everybody that goes through this process Their definition changes in the same way, and I didn't think that would be true. That was maybe the biggest shock of the whole thing to me. But my definition is I am successful if I fulfill the purpose I have in the world today, period. There's no accomplishment. There's not how many people I help, how many things I do. There's nothing tied to it other than am I fulfilling the purpose I'm meant for in the world right now in this moment, which means I can look at you in our little camera and say I am successful right now. And I've never been able to say that, even when I did huge things. sign a hundred and fifty million dollar deal. Dan, what are you gonna do now that you're successful? I'm not successful like I was totally away from that. Dan, you've helped two thousand people do this thing. No, I'm not successful now That's I It's interesting tell you so in a
1: corporate world you. So you didn't even think that you're successful in that corporate world. It wasn't just redefining what success was for you. It was actually defining it in the first place. Cause you didn't have that definition. If you didn't feel that that was success.
0: I always, I knew, no, So I thought that was success, but I never felt successful. So I, at first I like, I, I find this pattern that most people go through, right? They start by, in many cases, especially if they've come from an insecure childhood, meaning insecure, monetarily insecure, they, they tend to think, well, money is success and then it's advancement is success. And then it is, then the next evolution tends to be helping people is success. Then it's fulfilling my mission or accomplishing freedom or whatever it is, is success. And as I see people work through that, I really don't see but a tiny, tiny fraction who would be in any of those scenarios, who, if you interviewed them, could confidently look at you and say, Yes, I am successful. Now, other people would say it about them. They would say, I want to be successful. I would mm-hmm. like to be. Here's what it would take for me to be. But if you interview them in the in the honesty of honesties, do you, are you successful? Do you feel successful? The answer is going to be no.
1: That's actually really interesting because I'm sitting here as you're talking, reflecting on that. And I don't think that I probably ever felt it either. Although, it didn't hit there... me
0: until a year ago, by the way. Yeah. So I, I'd love to tell you I've had this great answer yeah. for all the while I've been in my company.
1: That's interesting. And I wonder whether or not my re-def- like redefining – um what success means to me is because i've never probably felt it before even though that was my definition in terms of like job title and money and that was what you know what i'm chasing and i didn't have an unstable childhood like yourself my, my parents still together and it was a happy childhood but it was um i think it's a narrative that that is subconsciously drilled into a lot of people as well so
0: uh well yeah, we're not given an answer to it either Right, We're all left to our own devices. And to be fair, I mentioned a moment ago, and it's very relevant, that I was shocked to recognize that I wasn't the only one whose definition of success changed when I went through this process.
1: I would disagree with that. I think that we are given a definition of success. I think our parents dictate what what that definition is. I think society- Fair
0: enough. I, I guess more- Maybe we're not giving one that connects with us as meaningful, except in very rare situations.
1: Well, yes. And I think that I'd probably elaborate on that point in, and say it may not – I think it may be what other people deem as success rather than what is true to you, to you as a person in your core. <laughs> Does that make okay. sense? Okay. Yeah. Like within, from within, like my definition of success yeah. is different to yours and it will be different to the next person and yeah, so it, forth. So when see, someone's telling a, you that what's what success.
0: But that's the part is. that I grabbed. But as I went through this process, this the, these five steps that I'm talking about that I couldn't have said they were five steps when I was going through them. But yeah. now that I've turned them into a training, I get it. Yeah. I agreed with it until I took other people through the process and saw that their definition changed almost identically to mine. And then I was blown. That's what blew me away the most out of that whole thing was that I saw the exact same shift and Mm -hmm. I wasn't preceding this. I wasn't putting it because I thought 0% did. I think that that was what was going to happen. And then I had other people come and share it with me and I was like, Oh, okay. And I don't, Man, I don't have a horse in the race. Whatever someone thinks success is, mm-hmm. they can think success is. I don't, I don't, I don't win or lose because of that. I w- it was more of a fascinated, ob- fascinated observation mm-hmm. that that this was happening. What I do think is this, and I, I think this is maybe important, is that the vast majority of definitions of success in the world are based upon a mindset of impatience mm-hmm. rather than a mindset of eagerness. And probably the single biggest shift I've encountered that I share with people in the last couple of years has been this shift from impatience to eagerness, understanding the difference between the two and moving from one to the other. It's certainly one of the most powerful shifts that's occurred in my life.
1: So what do you say is the difference between the two?
0: So I, I believe that impatience is historically inward and downward. Impatience tends to be about entitlement. It tends to be about a destination, about checking off the list, about, about an accomplishment, about, a, about an I deserve and, and I want and all of these things that are in many cases negative, although a bunch of them not necessarily inherently. It also tends to have a frenetic feeling to it, this, this anxiety tied to it. Eagerness is upward and outward eagerness is about learning and earning eagerness is about the journey rather than the destination it's about being present rather than being either wishful or wistful and it is a, it is something that is associated with calm and with progress and with and with movement but also with this with a presence and a connection
1: hmm Okay, do you think that you can be have eagerness without impatience and still achieve I suppose it then falls onto the definition of success, doesn't
0: it well but but let's just leave the sentence right where you put it. Can you still achieve because I think that's part of what you're what you're asking. Can you still achieve yeah. at high levels?
1: Yes, yeah,
0: with eagerness without impatience, and the answer is a thousand percent yes. And and that's something that I would not have thought to be the case because I, yeah. I lived with impatience and I knew it was a negative, but I also used it as my fire, right? Yeah,
1: that's yeah, because I would do the same thing, and I always wear it. Like people say to me, "Oh, um, oh, you're impatient. You know, you want to get stuff done because you're impatient." I'm like, "Yeah, let's let's move, let's get it done." And I was, and then I kind of I. Yeah. It's a negative, but
0: it's also a positive. Like it's kind of a... See, and I I no longer see it that way at all. Impatience. I I will avoid the impatience mindset like it is the plague because I believe it is. Right. And and I believe it's damaging in every way. And I lived in it for 45 years. So,
1: you
0: know, I'm not... You did
1: sales like I did. There's always a level of impatience and you're going to have to like, you know...
0: Next phone call, next phone
1: call, next next deal. Come on, do the thing. Yeah. But
0: remember that as I just even as I described it, even though it's about being present, which I think there's a huge benefit to, eagerness is still about movement because there's a growth. It's we're either getting better or worse every day, right? If we think we're sitting still, we're getting passed by inflation. So but but it's how that how that movement occurs. Does that movement occur because I've got the whip over my shoulder? Because or because or or, or because I think someone's pulling me forward because I have to have been there and I'm and I deserve it. Or does it occur because leaders are learners? Does it occur because because I want to get better and learn more today because I because I want to learn something and make and make progress by doing the things that I'm meant to do there? There's not a lack of movement in eagerness, eager, eager. In fact, I think it, it evokes positive movement whereas impatience represents almost negative stuck but it can be negative movement as well
1: Mm. and to me i think which is interesting i think thinking about what you're saying having this conversation to me it was either your go 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 which i suppose is an impatience rather than eagerness or you're procrastinating there's like there's like (laughs) two speeds you know what i mean
0: see i think procrastination is and and i'm like the best procrastinator you'll ever meet in your life yeah i I would win a lot of competitions of how to procrastinate well (laughs) but i i would actually argue that procrastination is a form of impatience
1: well um who's the i'm gonna have to look this up on instagram um there's (laughs) a psychologist that um is she's just written a book high five people that know will probably i'll have to find her um anyway she says that impatience is avoiding stress it's a stress avoidance thing so you procrastinate because you don't want to deal with the stress oh goodness me i'll have to find her keep talking i'll find
0: her yeah i think i yeah, I don't know, and I don't know if I completely agree with with even that perspective. Is there are there are people who crave the stress and therefore they procrastinate, and so I I don't know that I could that I could buy that that definition in the first place. Really? I, I think there's I a liked that definition. That Sorry,
1: <laughs> that's okay. You can have a different opinion. You're I allowed do. to, yeah. <laughs>
0: Now, mind you, I also, to be fair, have not read the book and could be taking a tiny fraction of one picture that I'm misunderstanding and extrapolating from it.
1: I haven't read the book, but I have watched a lot of her stuff on Instagram. And if I can remember her name... That's driving me bloody. I hate it when this happens. Anyway, so um, I do like a lot of her content. It resonates a lot with me. So and I'll, that's great.
0: Yeah. And again, I'm not. I'm not like, oh, she's terrible, or even that I disagree with her. I'm saying the little tiny piece that I've heard, I have a concern about. That's all.
1: <laughs> no, that's fine. You're allowed to. So in terms of because you've written, you've moved from. Okay, let's take a step back because you moved from um, corporate world and then you realigned your definition of success, and mm-hmm. then you moved into your own businesses. So talk a little bit about what your businesses, is, because you said you you are, have six. So what are they?
0: Yeah. And, and let me make sure I have the order right. I, I started the businesses and my definition of success changed much later. <laughs> it's It changed a right. year ago. I've had these businesses as they've been forming at least for six years. Right. So I began... Having no idea, as it turns out, what I was doing. I thought I did. I'd helped grow businesses from anywhere from a million to a hundred million dollars, and I was—I was like, "That's easy. That's that's a piece of cake."
1: Mel Robbins for those. That was the lady, Mel Robbins.
0: Okay. Yeah. Are you good now?
1: Yeah, yeah. I am. I saw you like. I I saw you like. Could not let it go. No, I can't. It's like when someone says something. I'm like, I can't. I have to Google that. I'm not sure if that's correct. Sorry, so you started these businesses. So That's that was all right. Serge- You're back. You're so here. Were, I was here anyway. See, this, is what, the, this, this see is, is what the this is what the <laughs> teachers used to say. I used to talk, and then they'd say, "What was I just saying?" I'd be able to rattle it off. That's all
0: right. So what you what I believe you had asked me, or what you had laid out was that I, I had I had done all of this stuff in corporate. And then my definition of success changed. And Mm -hmm. then I started these businesses. Yes. And what I said is, no, that's not what happened. What actually happened is that I left corporate and it wasn't until five years after I left corporate that my definition of success changed. Okay. Okay. And- for me leaving corporate was I I was ready to be like a rocket out of a cannon and like so many entrepreneurs that I encountered now I'm ready let's go I'm there it'll be easy yeah not so much no. as it turns out <laughs> <laughs> And in particular, when you have a big blind spot, and I had several, but one of them was I thought, how hard can it be to start a business? I've been running businesses and big teams and hundreds of millions of dollars for a long time. Well, there's a big difference from growing a business that's already a multi million dollar business to starting one from zero. This is when I learned that I am a refiner, not a creator. What do you? What
1: would you find? Because I've been in both situations, um, growing businesses from scratch for other people. Um, so I was earning a salary, and yeah. then obviously building the podcasts and and so forth. So, what do you think is the difference between the two? I know you said refine, a, but compared well, to well, there, there's growing. two,
0: maybe three big differences. Right. The first is doing it for yourself is a thousand percent different than taking someone else's stuff and effectively selling it or representing it. Mm. Our mind wraps around that in a completely different way. Just ask any coach the first time they go to present their own coaching. Now, this is work that they've almost certainly done with someone else that that worked within the company that they were or that reported to them or whatever. They did it there. They did it nice and easily. They did it under the guise of that. But when they sit down and have that conversation with somebody who is – who is who is potentially going to pay them for their services to make that difference and put themselves on the line and then have to discuss, Oh, and this costs money and it has value. You get into every little devilish part of your mind that you could possibly get into. It's a very different and difficult thing. The second is that when you work for somebody else, in most cases, not all, but in most cases, you're, you have an established situation that has structure and organization mm. and purpose mm. and direction and all of these things, but when you create something from zero, it has none of those things. And as it turns out, you're the one who's got to look in the mirror and figure out what those things are going to be, and then adapt and change and move and and do all of this while trying to help people and trying to learn and trying to grow. And 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 I'm going to add a two B in here to to part B, which is something that we miss a lot. We we generally think, oh, well, I quit my job. I'll have a ton of extra time. And I, I've i said this to a bunch of clients who were getting ready to quit their job and work on their business full time. And they said, I'll get so much more done. And I said, no, you won't. <laughs> They're like, what are you talking about? I'm stopping a 60 hour a week job. I said, yeah, it's amazing how everything expands to fill your time. And you're going to have to, unless you follow some very specific structural tips here, you're going to lose every bit of that time because Mm. of all the things that are waiting anxiously to fill it you ever notice when you go on vacation you suddenly have no time well it's the same thing just extend it so that's like two part b and then the third is capital right now every decision is you it's your reputation it's your money it's your it, it is your risk it's all of this, but it's also being done in many cases, unless you just got a big investment, it's being done on a very shoestring budget, and when you say, oh, we should advertise, oh, wait, A, how do I do that? B, who would I do it with? And C, how would I pay for it? And there's all of these pieces that come in, and that's before you get to things like understanding your niche, knowing your mission, being able to market all of those things.
1: Did you come up with the um, I want to do the development stuff with people. I know you don't like the, t- the terminology coach, the development stuff with people. And I'm then... fine with
0: coach. I just don't use life coach.
1: <laughs> so, okay. So the coaching, did you come up and, okay. So from, you're from a business background. Did you sit down with a business plan and say, this is what I'm going to do? Did you create a business plan around it? Or have you just kind of been figuring it out as you go along? What feels right?
0: A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I came right. out with a plan and, and I and I knew that I could help people. Yeah. I knew that I could support people. I'd, I'd given a lot of advice to people. I, so I'd help people with, that worked for me, the thousands of people that mm. did. And then I'd given advice to other small businesses, to friends that had been very successful in this. So I, I, I entered knowing this has value. I can do it. Therefore, whatever I may have struggled to call it, coaching, consulting, whatever I wandered through of 30 different things that it could have been labeled as, I knew I could do that. And so I decided to start doing that. This is when I did learn asking for money for yourself versus someone else is a whole different conversation and validating that you're what you're doing makes a big difference matters. And and I've learned I learned a lot of things through that and that that mattered. And then I had to figure out, well, why am I doing all this? Where does it go? what's going to be impactful what's going to scale who do i really help all of those questions came up for different reasons and they do for virtually everyone and they had and i had to find answers
1: where did you find the answers was it sort of when you were sitting down refining refining everything or was it sort of talking with your clients what they wanted like how did you refine it
0: there are a number of places. Number one, my coaches, I, I, I passionately believe that the best investment we can make is to have a coach. And I, therefore I found success with my coaches and, uh, that's important to me. Certainly my number one gift in the world is synthesis to see things from a hundred places, pick a little bit from each one and combine them into something that was better than any of them. So I would learn from my mistakes. or I would learn from others. I listened to thousands of hours of podcasts. I looked and talked to different business owners and I absorbed all of it and coalesced it and figured out, Oh, there it is. I also figured it out and refined it because I made a bunch of mistakes and that's one of the things i try to help people do a lot less of but i i made a lot of mistakes some of them very painful the the multiple websites that i went through being an example thousands of dollars spent frankly pretty pointlessly because websites are largely non-beneficial at this point. And that's, that's been a shift in the last couple of years, but even when I was doing them, I didn't, I didn't really understand. I didn't ask the right questions. I law, I made a bad decision of saying when somebody said, Dan, you need to know your niche and you need to know who you're aiming at. I said, no, you do, but I don't, I can help everyone. Well, which anybody who is now laughing and shaking your head, you're right. Because you do have to know who you're aiming at. You have to know who you're speaking to and for and all of that. And other people may come to you, but if you're reaching out, and you're spending resources, you have to know who. And I've, I found that out by not doing it It in, in, after telling, after somebody telling me that I needed to and didn't listen to them.
1: How did you mention the difference between working with someone and having that whip over your shoulder, which is definite reality when you're working in the corporate world and um, compared to being self-motivated and and running your own business. How did you, in the last sort of two years, particularly the last 14 months, you've gone through a number of health issues. Mm -hmm. How did you stay motivated and keep your business on track? (laughs) Because I'm sure there's lots of people in that situation.
0: Well, I I would say that I didn't keep, I did stay motivated. I did Mm -hmm. not keep my businesses on track as I would like, mostly because at some point the health issues were just too numerous, frankly, between multiple heart attacks and multiple cancer scares and liver disease and thyroid issues and everything else and medicine conflicts and all of this that added up. At some point, it just got to be a lot. The medicine conflicts were the biggest thing because they caused a certain level of brain fog in me that I literally couldn't function for months at a time. Mm. And so my business struggled mightily. It went from the multi six-figure coaching business that I would built and with a speaking business that was being launched in a powerful way to very little and, and is being rebuilt out of it. That's mostly not my mindset. In fact, I would say it's almost 0% my mindset in terms of my belief, my passion, my engagement, my understanding, my strategy, and much more the fact that I was unable to function. But how did I keep the the forward focus, the strategic mm. mindset, the encouragement, that's yeah. really important. That's a super important question because I, I do believe, as most people do, about 80% of the people I've asked the question on my podcast, that the number one characteristic you must have as an entrepreneur if you're definitely going to be successful is grit, perseverance, resilience, however you want to label it. And I think that comes from different places for different people. For me, it, it's certainly come from the drive that I've had, knowing knowing passionately what the purpose is that I'm meant for in the world, having found that resonance a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago. And when I did, letting that change everything in me because everything started flowing to me instead of me fighting through it. But the second is – You hear this a lot today, but I I would connect it in a meaningful way. The second is objective gratitude. And what I mean by that is first recognizing the thing that we've all heard. Life is 10% what happens, 90% how we respond to it. And I'm never going to go to Vegas and bet on 10%. So why do I care to a large degree what happens since life is 90% determined by my response and I'm 100% in control of me. So I choose to respond, which is why I've lived gratefully. And it's corollary, which is that in our darkest day, and our darkest hour, and when I think of that, I think of the day my son almost died two and a half years or three and a half years ago. Or I think of the, or I think of the day that I was laying on the operating table after they told me 60% of people died from what I had. And when I felt grateful, especially in that second moment, it's because I realized that objectively in that darkest day, in that darkest hour, 90% of the things in my life were still good.
1: Wow. Wow. That's pretty powerful that you were able to look past that shit time, basically that moment.
0: <laughs> I mean, fair. I I'll tell you a year earlier two years earlier, I couldn't have. And I just, I mean, to be completely honest and I, I share that in an episode of our podcast where I'm talking about my first heart attack and I, I hate that I'm not even 48 and I'm saying my first one. Right. But <laughs> Because I had more, but, but I, I share that in that, Look, a, a year earlier, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wasn't in that position. I've almost died, I, I, conservatively seven times in my life.
1: Holy moly!
0: And each time that I've come out of it, with the exception of uh, of starting here, I have, like so many other people, looked at my life and said, "Man, I need to make some changes." I need to, I need to make some adjustments. I need to, uh, I need to adjust my mindset or I need to adjust my mission or whatever. Like I need to do that. What truly struck me is it was about a month before this first heart attack that I had said, I have found my personal resonance. I've got it. I know my mission. I know what I live for. I'm at peace in my own skin. And my definition of success of success had changed. And when I laid there, you want to talk about having it proven, whether you believe what you believe or not. Yeah. Yeah. I laid there, and I felt, I felt fear, of course, but I felt primarily gratitude. And when I did, and I knew that that was the case, and I knew that it was different, I knew that I didn't have to change. I had to change my eating habits. <laughs> I'm still working on that. But I didn't have to change my mindset or my mission even 1%. And that's when it hit me that, yeah, I was right. I wasn't guessing about having found my personal resonance. I wasn't guessing about the things that I believed or what I was meant for. When I laid there and I literally just almost died, and even and as quickly as an hour after that, I'm realizing I don't have to change my mindset or my mission because it was right where it needed to be. That was powerful to me.
1: How has, how has, um, i haven't had any near-death experiences
0: good (laughs) don't (laughs) but i remember the part i I did it so you don't have to this this is included
1: (laughs) um how has that I, i suppose as i'm getting older as everybody probably does you get a little bit more aware of your mortality um and I'm saying that I'm still in my 30s, so I'm saying that people are probably in their 40s They're and 50s rolling their eyes and right now. But that's rolling okay. their eyes.
0: You remember but... when you were like 15 and you thought someone <laughs> who's 25 was really old, right? Yeah, I yeah. don't know. I think maybe
1: because I'm coming up on. I mean, I'm still a few years off, but I'm coming up on my 40th, and that's sort of you know, almost the halfway like you know, halfway mark, um, maybe. Um, and it does sort of re. Like, I can understand why people have midlife crisis. Let's put put it that way. Okay. But um, how's that near-death experience, how has it changed your... I know you're saying it didn't change your mission or it didn't change your value statement, but how, how has it changed other things in your life? Because that sense of mortality of how fragile life is must be motivating in other areas of
0: your life. Well, I would say... I would say two things. First of all, that one in that way didn't because I'd already gone through that a bunch of times. Right. right? And I'd also almost lost my child. I mean, I've I've had, I've had so much loss. I've lost 137 people. I know to suicide. I mean, I've I've had,
1: yeah, it's insane.
0: I have, I've, I've dealt with a lot. I'm not, I'm not unaware of mortality. Yeah. What I will say changed or when I will say it changed a little bit, wasn't the first heart attack. It wasn't even when I went back to the hospital for the second, what we thought was a heart attack and, and maybe wasn't, maybe was. It was when we went back for what we've defined as definitely my second heart attack, which was still only six months later. And we figured out that I have a genetic defect in my heart that as a note, I got from my mother who died of the exact same thing within a week and a half of the age I was when I had my first heart attack. So I was on the table within a week and a half of being older than her, dying of the same thing, and we didn't even know it. Uh, So lots of crazy things in my life. But that second one, when we discovered that I had that genetic issue, and that as a result of that, and a couple of other things, that my that that my artery was going to keep clogging it's currently 100% blocked i'm st- i'm sitting standing here talking to you with a 100% blocked artery in my heart and we're just in pain management because the surgery to fix it is major and scary and they'd like to wait a few years if they can and my cardiologist's answer to me right now is don't worry your next heart attack probably won't kill you so you're good um she has the she she's super bright she has the bedside manner uh, manner of like an you know a uh, an iron brush <laughs> but but
1: hang on a minute how yeah. can you be i thought that if you had a, a blocked artery you're actually that that's a heart attack and a heart attack is insufficient blood supply to the mm-hmm. heart and therefore your heart muscle starts to die.
0: Yeah. Th- there's more to it than that. Okay. And your heart, oddly enough, can even make some side arteries. Right. Like just randomly start forming some.
1: Like the human body's amazing, isn't
0: it? It, it, it is. It It's it's pretty crazy. And I'm not saying that I don't have issues. I wake up every morning and I'm in a pain of about a six and a half. When I wake up, it takes me about an hour and a half to get to a spot where I'm functional. And I take, a bunch of pills a day trying to make things trying to make things better to widen my arteries to to help me function in a better way. So I'm I'm not trying to blow it off and say, "Oh, you know, that's awesome that my heart is blocked." I'm saying that what we discovered is that the restenosis, the clogging of my stents happens about a month and a half after I get a procedure. So unless I want to have a procedure every 45 days, which has a 2-week recovery and 2 weeks of pain before it and all that. So I'm losing 50, you know, maybe 15 to 30 of those and not really gaining any significant medical benefit, then this is my option at the moment.
1: So what's the enormous uh, procedure that they're putting off a heart transplant?
0: No, it's not a transplant. It is, it is a very specialized version of a, of an open heart surgery that the, the best I can describe it, and there's more to it than this and more complexity than it probably bears going through or that anyone would want to listen to, but basically most heart – when you start getting into heart surgeries, most of the – what you'll hear is a triple bypass or something yeah. like that. They'll do the first artery with an artery. They'll replace it. The others go with veins from your legs. And there is a, and then you have like your three month recovery and all of that. Well, there is a super special version of this where they can do them where, especially for younger patients, because that first one that I described, uh, it is a 50% survival rate in 10 years. Well, I'm a pretty young guy. That one, that doesn't sound like great math to me. I don't like that math. So then there's another version, which is very rarely done. It's like $2.2 million. It's five to six months of recovery with the first month in bed. There's an option where they can go in and they can actually do it all with arteries. It is risky because there's a much higher percentage chance that you die on the table or that you die in recovery. But if you do make it, your 10-year survival rate is significantly higher. And so- That's the, at the moment, that's the option. Now that doesn't mean other options won't occur and it doesn't mean that one isn't going to happen, but taking five to six months to recover, getting the approvals through the insurance, doing all of that stuff, especially with me as young as I am at the moment to my doctors and I doesn't feel like the single best option. So we're trying to work on a variety of other potential solutions. And I'm exploring, thanks to a lot of my friends in the healing arts, I'm exploring a number of non-Western medicine solutions as well.
1: Oh my goodness, that's crazy. So, we're talking. (laughs) I think we we, went down a rabbit hole there. We did go down a rabbit hole. hole. That's the beauty of podcasts, right? Um, So, we're talking about the motive. Are you keeping motivated in regards to business? And you said you kept the motivation, but you didn't keep the momentum and you're having to rebuild that at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, What would you say that would be the biggest factor of keeping that motivation? Because a lot of people would have said, look, it's all too hard. It's easier for me just to go back to the corporate world, get a salary what what do you think kept you motivated was it that your value statement regards to you know your purpose
0: yeah so a lot of it is i've i've done a lot of the work to ask what my North star is, what, what am I meant for in this world? What's the legacy that I want to leave all of that. And, and it took me a while to really pin that down. But once I have, and and since we haven't shared it here yet, I'll share it, that my mission in the world is to, (laughs) to inspire true generational change that will reduce human trafficking, hunger, poverty, and racism by 15% in the next 15 years worldwide. And I know that's what I'm meant to live where I know that's what I'm meant to work towards. And the way that I test these things, when I help other people find their North star and we go through that whole process is, is a, it's a fun little test. It's the, it's, I call it the break rocks in Russia test and it works for everybody, but my Russians <laughs> and it, it is this, it is. And it is the point is you take something that's ridiculous that you know, you would hate to do, but I like to use this one. You ask yourself when you're trying to figure out, is this my North star? If I woke up tomorrow and I was told that beyond a shadow of a doubt, this mission would be accomplished if I would be willing to spend the next year going to Siberia and breaking rocks with a hammer. And if you wait, if you can go, hell yes, I would do that. Then you probably got your North star. If you go, "Eh, I don't know, then you're probably in the neighborhood, but not quite there. If you go no way in the world then you're, probably need to have some adjustment of your direction to go but but once you have that It does some very interesting things. It one, and and maybe the most important is it allows you to find calm because instead of guessing like most people do and saying, oh, what am I passionate about? What can I do? Which is a great question. It's just in the wrong order. uh, And then you guess and then you go and you're so excited about it. And then you find out it isn't it. And you get so frustrated and resentful and you pick another one and you have this cycle of overwhelm. This completely sidesteps that. It lets you get, look at the destination flip it around and reverse engineer everything and say, okay, what are the strategies that would get me there? What are the tactics that would make that strategy happen? What are the tasks that are required for that, for that uh, tactic? And it's very interesting because now every task I do is building me very specifically, very intentionally, very clearly toward my North star. So I know that everything I do matters and that's a big part. The, the other, the flip side, and, and I, I want to make sure that I give this because I think it's really important, is that when you are, when you're deciding, do I start my business? Do I write a book? Do I start a podcast? People ask me all the time, Dan, how do I know when to do it? And my answer is do it when you can't not do it. And if you do that, you're a lot more likely to have the resilience. If you do it when it's just like, ah, eh, maybe, well, that's cool. Then do it as a side gig and put it out there and take a shot. I'm not saying don't take the shot, but if you're thinking, should I jump off the cliff? Ask yourself, am I at a spot where I can't not do it? And you're a lot more likely to be driven.
1: That's a great, great tip. Do it when you can't not do it. You, The majority of your clients that you focus on, well, I don't know, maybe all of them, are women. And you said in the LGBTQ, is there other, other letters after that
0: community? <laughs> there, there often are. <laughs> my, my clients fall into primarily three groups. And I, and I think saying 95% of my clients is fair because I have, I have a couple of clients who have come to me or who I've encountered over the years who don't fall into these categories. But the vast majority of my audience and my clients are women, creatives, or people in the LGBTQ community. They, they, match one, sometimes two or all three of these, of these categories. And that's the majority of people that I work with. Yes.
1: Why are you focusing on those, those categories of people?
0: Well, the, the the bigger question for me was why in the world are these people focusing on me? When I started to find my niche, the first question that I asked, which is one of the first questions that I ask every one of my clients when we work through this is who is it that is drawn to you? Who is it that feels like you felt when you were a kid or when you were in your deepest area of struggle? I felt unseen, unheard, like the world didn't speak to me. Sound like any groups we all know? Right? Like these groups have that. So that was why they were drawn to me. What became interesting later is I uncovered my Mission is two things. One, I found thanks to my good friend, Ian Hawkins, who is an amazing coach for mental and emotional stuff and dealing with trauma. He, he and I talked and he he said, Dan, you're a translator. So what, what does that mean? And we discovered that I grew up very successfully in a masculine energy world, understanding it, translating it, getting it, but that I speak with a very powerful feminine energy. And I did. I couldn't have told you even a year and a half ago what that meant. But I recognize now that that makes me a bit of a beacon to those groups and I connect really well. I speak their language, but I speak the information from the rest of the world into their language and it makes sense. So this is why they they seem to be connected to me. And then why do they matter to me well oh my gosh well i think when the women start...
1: is for you because of your mom. i think in wanting to empower women because of
0: i you would know, say you, that that's a strong you would say that and i and i think there's certainly a component of that but that's not why they matter to my mission
1: wow that's interesting
0: they matter to my mission it, it, it requires a, a little bit of a step. So my mission to inspire that generational change, I said, how in the world do I do that? And thankfully, I don't have to do the generational change, just inspire it. Well, how do I do that? It's I, f- I help a million people to achieve their dreams and then they will naturally pass the tipping point and the generational change will automatically occur. And then I said, well, OK, well, who are these million people? That's where the women come in. Women. People who are listening are really going to love this. Women are better than men. Uh, women are three times more successful, are more likely to be successful, and they will be successful three times faster than men. So if you want movement in the world, have women do it. If you want newness and light in the world, it's creatives. They're the genesis of almost every big change. And if you want resilience, reach out to the LGBTQ community. And if you mix those together in the right ratio, Boom, generational change occurs. And so I believe that that's why that mix of of why all my groups are there. And then all I had to ask was what is the pain or the frustration that they're encountering and how can I meaningfully impact that now that I have the ability to translate to them, now that I have the audience, now that I connect with them, what's the meaningful difference I can make in their lives that will allow them to achieve their dreams?
1: How do you measure the 15%?
0: Well, you can look – it depends upon which one of those you're speaking of. But if you look, for example, at human trafficking, there are pretty clear numbers that are out there. If you look at – racism is probably the hardest one to measure. And, mm-hmm. I, and I love that you asked this question because I'm a numbers guy. I'm an analyst and a strategist. <laughs> and rarely do people ask me questions in the, how did you come up with these formulas, Dan? Where does <laughs> this come from?
1: That's a coming out. Come on. You know, yeah, no, I'm –
0: <laughs> well, and and, it, and then when people, the rare people who do ask the questions are always a little surprised when I actually have answers and didn't just pull it out somewhere. Uh, no, I so, expected
1: you to have an answer, but I, yeah.
0: But yeah, so each of these, if you look at the main organizations that are that are engaged with them, they, they each have their own measures for here's how many incidents, here's how much is going on, here's how much of the world's economy is impacted, et cetera. And measurably, we're looking to decrease that by 15%. Now, interestingly, I very intentionally can't tell you exactly what 15% of each of those is right now because I know that we are so early in the process that knowing that number will cloud the issue. Other than knowing how significant each problem is, that's important, right? Just like I know the numbers for suicide, I like to know how significant these problems are, how much of the world it impacts. But knowing the, the number that is 15%, far less relevant for me right now. The one thing that is odd is well where did 15% came from or come from? And I don't have a great answer to that, which is very rare for me. Generally, every number I give you, I have this perfect like here's the nine steps of how I got there. The 15% in 15 years is what was I guess the best way I can put it is it was what was impressed upon my soul.
1: Uh, hang on, I just want to go back and clarify. So you're saying that you've got the 15% goal because that's what you mm-hmm. felt that
0: you that's to reduce what, it by fifteen percent in fifteen years.
1: But then, am I correct in here in saying that I heard that you said you didn't know the numbers of what that measurably was?
0: I do know. I have. I have those numbers. I'm saying I don't know those numbers.
1: Okay, all right. So I don't
0: know them cold. So you could look and at them. I sp- and I and to be. I, I want to make one other clarifier because I did say this, and i and I meant it. I do not look at those numbers right now.
1: Okay, because to, to, for me, I would be like, okay, that's the 15%. These are the numbers because I'm a numbers person. You know, this, is, right. this is how I measure so, that goal.
0: Very and, and I get that, but yeah. I would also – have you ever heard of the book Four Disciplines of Execution, 4DX? No. All right, so Four Disciplines of Execution. There, there are, I take a little bit from a lot of different books. Yeah, good. That, that's, that's the synthesis, right? Yeah. One of the things that they talk about is a lead measure and a lag measure. And, and the lag measure is like the report of things that have happened. The lead measure is what you do to make things happen. And the lag measure, in this case, the, the report of things that happen—that's the—that's that the numbers that are wrapped up in what the fifteen percent is represented by, right? In other words, I'm not doing something direct that says that says if I say today I want to reduce it by one percent this year, it does me it does me very little good in the moment. Measuring whether we have will be relevant, but if I, instead say, if I instead have worked the equation as I have to know that it's 984,000 people that need to achieve their dreams, I call it a million, but it's really 984,000 if you do all the math, to achieve their dreams to get past the tipping point, then my lead measure is how many people can we help to achieve their dreams? Mm. And that's the number that I care about because I know if A, then B. And, and if a, then B is, is what works for me. It's actually one of the things I do when I train sales as well is that I, I actually, I just did this with a client this weekend and it completely opened his eyes. He, I said, how many cars do you need to sell? And he told me, and I said, cool, that doesn't matter. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, I said, what's the value of a phone call? And he said, I don't know. I said, take every call you've made, divide your income, by it for the year. That's the value of a call. And he came up with, Oh, it was $30 or something like that. Right. I said, great. So every time you dial the phone, it you, you make $30. It, you don't get paid when you sell, you get paid when you do the activity. Mm-hmm. And so if you recognize the sing the singular activity that generates the result, focus on the focus on measuring the activity and you'll get much further
1: that's interesting that is a very much a sales mentality isn't it do the activity and the and the results will follow
0: it is except that except there's a there's a flaw in that in that people are still looking at the results being the other end whereas i i just i just want to make the calls And what I look at is not, I get, so when I was, when I was out selling and I would sell for home improvements for a long time, I'd come home and my wife would say, how'd you do? And I'd be like, I sold. And I was in a great mood or, or I like, I didn't. And I was, and I was in a rough mood. I got a couple of years in and I would come home and she'd say, how you doing? I'd say, I made $600. And she was like, oh, you had three appointments. I was like, yep. Because I knew at that point that the value of every appointment was 200 was $200. I knew that I was going to, if I had 20 appointments that week, I'd make $4,000. Mm. That's just how it was. And so I st- I got to where I understood that whether they were home, whether they weren't, whether they yelled at me, threw me out, said, I want to think about it, whether they bought, whether they were a credit decline, whatever, I made the exact same amount of money. It's just like we get paid on payday. If you think of somebody who works a 40 hour a week, we get paid on Friday morning at nine o'clock, just picking a number. Well, we didn't earn all of that Friday morning at 859. We earned it by doing the 40 hours of work. And so each hour that we worked contributed to our pay. The same is true in sales that we're actually getting paid for the activity, not the result. We just don't look at it that way.
1: Mm. Mm. I think it's also the difference between – I mean, I used to – although I was in sales and BD and account management and stuff like that, I never saw myself as a salesperson. I was a Mm -hmm. relationship builder. And I think – And
0: this helps that, by the way. yeah. This helps you, that immensely. Yeah. <laughs> Is it it takes away the emotion of I've got to sell you. Mm. Right? It's like, look, I know that I get paid this many dollars per conversation. I just want to have as many productive conversations as I can. Yeah. I I, I, one people. of my clients, we got it down to how many handshakes? Because it, we, we defined what that was. Like it was a 60 second 60 second conversation. Like, how many people can you meet today? Just just meet independently at an event or whatever. And we got it down to where it was like seven dollars for every hand, every hand they shook. You think they didn't shake more hands at the next event? Because in their mind, they're walking around $6, $6, $6. Like, it's all the same And it evened them out. I believe about 70% of the things that I train, whether it be time effectiveness, sales, or otherwise, are how to keep us calm. Because the two things we want most in the world, it's what I share when I'm on stage as well, the two things we want most in the world, to find our calm, in order to be out of the cycle of overwhelm, out of the stress, out of the anxiety, out of all that, so to be calm and to understand our next steps. And if we know those two things clearly, the world changes.
1: It's interesting. I would always go with the mentality of what's their, what problem can I solve that they're having? So if you can mm-hmm. understand what their issue is, then you can understand how to, you know, provide the yep. solution. And I think them. that's
0: a key step in the, I think that's a key step in the process. Yeah. So if I bring somebody up on stage, which I, I'll do, and I'll do a laser coaching session with them to understand their problem, I'll say, think of the biggest problem you're facing. No, so I'm in mean me, it
1: in terms of like a sales. So sales, if you go to them, if you have a product or, I mean, I was. Okay. Yeah. So if they've yeah, come to and, you. So for example, for real estate, you understand what right. they're looking for, what their issue is. Uh-huh. Too many kids, house too small. So then you can use that to to sell. Same thing in, I was doing recruitment as well. So same thing for recruitment. It's time right. factor.
0: Yeah, of of course. And, and every business exists for only one or two reasons. To yeah. either relieve a pain or solve a problem. Yeah. So once we recognize that, and, and then the thing that the mistake that salespeople make in that situation is they forget that. Mm. And so they won't allow people to sit in their pain, they'll allow them to sit in their in the rationalization that happens after they leave the house. Mm. I, I, I think of when I was out selling kitchens. And I would show up to someone's house and 10 minutes before I got there, they're like, Oh my God, we've had this kitchen for 30 years. It's terrible. Everything's falling off the hinges. There's a leak everywhere. The countertop has burn marks all over it. We have got to change this. And I would come in and I would say, Hey, how you doing? And you know, so tell me what's going on with your kitchen before I knew how to ask better questions. I would ask them that. And they would say, Oh, you know, it's not too bad, but we're thinking about maybe doing something someday. Like what, what happened in that, in that 10 minutes? And And if I didn't, if I I wasn't able to ask them questions to connect them to where they really were, not where they weren't, not making something more than it was, but where they actually honest to goodness were, then the rest of the presentation would be a waste. But if I connected them to that, if I allowed them to sit in the pain, which we do, especially as heart centered leaders, we hate to do because we want to solve pain. We don't want to enhance it. We don't we don't want to we don't want to be the, the person who allows them to be in pain for a moment longer than possible. But I think you have to let people be in their real honest to God pain for a couple minutes. Because if you don't, you're allowing them to suffer for a couple of years. It's
1: hmm. interesting point. How do people find you, Dan, for your coaching services and your speaking?
0: Yeah, the, they're welcome to email me at dmcpherson at leadersmustlead.com. I think the, one of the best things to do is check out our podcast, Dreams Are Real, and join our podcast community. It's, it's really our Dreams Are Real community on Facebook where we help people take the next step toward their dreams. Uh, you're welcome to find me anywhere on any social. Just just look for Leaders Must Leader Dan McPherson. You'll find me. But those are probably the best and easiest places. I Facebook Messenger me. I'm in.
1: Um, um you were always on Facebook Messenger. You're very prompt at it, even with the time, that. even with the time differences. I'm like, this is crazy. Um, thank you, Dan. Thank you so much, everyone. I'll put the link in the show notes below. And uh, it's been a pleasure.
0: Cheers, Dan. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, it's been amazing.
1: Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them.